This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, the drumbeat of war is beating uh, faster and more loudly. The, the apartheid regime of Israel is amplifying its uh, drumbeat of war, not just against Iran, but also in the south of Lebanon. So we're going to be covering the, uh, the warmongering that the apartheid state is engaging in right now. We have a very, very unsettling situation going on in Afghanistan right now. As the American troops are leaving, the 10th provincial capital uh, city has been taken, and the State Department just announced within probably 20 or 30 minutes that they're essentially asking, I think begging, uh, the Taliban to not destroy the U.S. embassy. So we'll be talking about Afghanistan and the cat catastrophe that the United States has created in, in Afghanistan. And then uh, finally, you know, we're, we're going to we have to talk about COVID. I know we've we've not talked about it in a while, Jamal, but there's a lot to talk about. But before we get to those, you did an amazing interview with uh, Mona Halabi about her attempt to recover her right of return through going back to see her mother's home in Jerusalem. It's really a beautiful uh, interview, and her story is just amazing, and it's a testament to the power of these Palestinian voices uh, combating the the kind of racist uh, ideology and narratives that the uh, uh, apartheid regime has that there were no Palestinians. I think Mona Halabi might disagree with that. Correct, uh, Jess. And of course, she wrote a beautiful book, In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. And something very interesting, this is again a, a reminder about the Palestinian di- the diaspora right. and, and their desire to go home, regardless whether someone was born in Palestine or not. So Mona Halabi is the daughter of parents who grew up and and had a home in Palestine and was made refugee. And she was born, of course, outside of Palestine because her parents were made refugee. Let's uh, watch Mona. May 15 is a day Palestinians know as their Nakba or catastrophe, the traumatic expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from their homes in 1948 by Zionist gangs. This event both defined their future of statelessness and occupation, and now forms the basis of their distinct national identity. In my mother's footsteps, a Palestinian refugee returns home, is a moving and heart-rending journey of a daughter discovering her roots and recovering her mother's beloved past. Joining us to discuss her newly published book, Mona Hajjar Halabi. Mona is a Palestinian-American educator specializing in conflict resolution in the classroom, as well as a social historian. Welcome to Arab Talk, Mona. Thank you, Jamal. It's my pleasure. First, let me congratulate you on this wonderful and captivating book. This is not your first book. You wrote in the past a book that's uh, related to your field as an educator. This book is a personal journey. What took you there? 
I had always wanted to record my mother's story because I think as a Palestinian, my, my legacy is to tell that story to my children and grandchildren. At the time that I was interviewing her to, to write this book about her life, um, I was invited to teach at the Ramallah Friends School and train the, the staff in conflict resolution and nonviolent communication. And so the book became her story and my story. And it was beautiful because it was in some ways, as you introduced me, uh, her recovering her past and my discovering my past. And so it became it became our story, joint story. So I've noticed that home or house is a strong uh, recurrent theme in your book. You pass by your mother's house several times until at last you are able to enter you you didn't grow up there let's uh, you, you didn't grow up in Jerusalem or in that house you learned about it from your mother yet you felt very connected you walk in that house the key is still hanging on uh, on, on the wall of that house right. how did you feel when you finally finally entered it and see it and and seen it in reality really oh, it it was uh, you know earth shattering for me because there were many emotions, uh, Jamal. Uh, for one, I had imagined this house for years as my mother described it to me. And, and you know, she was a very good storyteller and would describe every, every corner of the house, the paintings that were on the wall, the, the potted plants in the hallway. I knew where everything was. So the house, uh, I already had an imprint of it in my mind. And coming inside it felt felt as though I was reconnecting with an old friend, you know, it was uh, very moving. It was not owned by my mother's family. They were modest, a modest family. They did not own any property. They rented it, but they rented it from the early 1920s to, to the late 1940s, to the Nakba 1948. But it, it was their home. It was filled with their memories and their belongings and their my grandfather's beloved books. And so it, it, it was home for me. The, so there was a lot of joy in entering this house and finally seeing it and feeling mama's presence everywhere. But also there was a lot of sadness because obviously it was forcibly taken away from my family, like hundreds and thousands of Palestinian refugees experienced. And also, I the sad part for me was that I entered it without my mother. Uh, <clears throat> and that was, I wish I had been able to walk through the hallways and bedrooms with her and have her tell me more details about the house. She only saw it from the garden. But, you know, I, I carry my mother inside me. And so I feel like she was with me, whether she was there in flesh and bones or not. You and I have a connection in a, in a kind of a different way. Of course, you, you were born outside Palestine. I was born in Jerusalem. But actually, my, uh, my father lost his house in what is now, what is it called? The neighborhood is called Nabi Dahoud neighborhood. This is where all the Dajani family lived for generations since uh, 
probably the 12th century uh, onward. And so I got to experience going with my father after 1967, because after, you know, 1948, he moved to East Jerusalem. So we were lucky enough to, to be born in Jerusalem, yet not in our ancestral home. And I still have that reaction when he first went. I was like uh, 10 years old at, at, at the time. And then later on, I also went again more extensively with his brother, my uncle, his, his, his youngest uh, brother, Yaqub. And then we got to go inside his room, and uh, I still carry the image of, of the reaction on his face when, when he went in. Mm. Uh, of course, uh, you know, you went back. Talk a little bit about uh, all the family connections you were able to uncover and enjoy in person during your time in Jerusalem and Palestine. Uh, one thing kind of caught my eye because I went to College de Frere. You mentioned Frere Albert or yeah. Albert, as well as your relatives uh, within the old city of Jerusalem. How were you received? Oh, with open arms. You know, the legendary Palestinian um, hospitality, Arab hospitality, in fact, it is throughout the Arab world. Um, people are so happy to welcome you in their homes, to, to feed you, you know, the, the importance of food um, and the importance of storytelling. I, I found that every Palestinian I met had stories to tell me. And uh, <clears throat> I was lucky to meet many of my mother's contemporaries who, who are still living in the old city, like, for instance, uh, Auntie Henriette Siksik Farage, uh, who started the Melja, you know, the uh, uh, Four Homes of Mercy, um, and was a great benefactor and a philanthropist. Um, as well as Maroon Tarsha, who was uh, a distant cousin of my mother. And when I sat in the company of uh, people who were in their 80s and 90s and who had lived through the Nakba and who had also enjoyed Palestinian life before the Nakba, uh, it was almost as though I was stepping into a history book, you know, and it was made alive for me through my interactions with them. Frère Albert was so gracious, took me for a tour of the school, and I sat with him and all I the other... I spent 13, 13 years of my life from kindergarten <laughs> till I graduated in that school. So I have I know every nook and cranny in that school. <laughs> I should have taken you with me to show me around. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful institution that um, had, has withstood with the time with all of these young men who were educated there. Um, so it was a pleasure to be in there and also to see my, my family on my mother's father's side. I have cousins in Ramallah and in Birzeit and to be able to reconnect with family and friends. Um, you know, it warmed my heart and it made me feel that I belonged, even though I had never uh, you know, I wasn't born there. I said in my book someplace I wasn't born there. I <clears throat> I uh, uh, didn't live there, but I am from there, you know. Of course, one cannot ignore the Israeli occupation when you're there and the injustice uh, it has done to Palestinians. Uh, uh, you talk about it, but you also highlight the beauty and the vibrancy of Palestinian culture uh, for your readers who may not... Uh, be familiar with it. 
Was it uh, your goal or was it just organic to talk about it? No, it was my goal. I, uh, you know, I, I never grew up with the sense of victimhood as a Palestinian. I, I was aware of the suffering, the injustices, the call for liberation from occupation, or actually I like to call it colonization. It's not an occupation. Co- occupation has a, a, a time-sensitive framework. Um, you know, it's temporary, but, um, you know, Israel is colonizing Palestine. This is what's happening. And I wanted to write about it, but I I also grew up with this sense of tremendous pride and, and joy about the beauty of our country and the and the the the, the wondrous uh, feeling that my mother had about the people of Palestine, and so I wanted to balance in my book both. You know, I write about the checkpoints and the inhumanity and the indignations and humiliations, um, but I also wanted to talk about how beautiful those terraced hills of Palestine with the olive trees and and the generosity of its people, the little villages, Tormus Aya, when I went there and spent the day with Imrassan and we made uh, Zatar, Rasbit Zatar um, breads. And, you know, I think most of the Western world um, sees Palestine through the lens of the media, which often has to carry the news. And the news is is harsh and it's bad. It's the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, it's the bombings in Gaza, it's the incursion in Al-Aqsa Mosque, all of these things that happened in May and that have been happening and continue to happen. So I wanted to also offer another view of Palestine to make it more complete and to educate people. As you are uh, well aware of, the Nakba or the catastrophe has created a multi-tier Palestinian identity in a way, except it's all united under that main umbrella of, of being Palestinian. You have the people who live in Gaza. You have, of course, the Palestinian diaspora. And then, in, and then within Palestine, you have the 1948 Palestinians, yes. uh, because you, in your book you talk about your trip to Akka and Haifa and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then you have those who live under the occupation in Jerusalem and those who are now in in the West Bank. Yes. Did anything surprise you about the kind of their behavior in one way? I mean, is there a difference between when you've met Palestinians, for example, from Akka and Palestinians from Jerusalem versus Palestinians from Ramallah and Nablus? Um, To be honest with you, I wasn't looking for differences, so perhaps I missed some things. But I have to say that um, in general, I did not see a difference. There is an open spirit in Palestinians and a a uh, sumud, you know, their their the, the steadfastness, steadfastness, exactly in all of them. Obviously, the ones that live within the borders of the state of Israel, um, <clears throat> I felt that they did not feel as free to talk about their the the situation. There, there is this, you know, when I talk about the young man at the, who was our waiter 
at Abu Christo's restaurant in Akka, and I'm asking for type of beer, and he cannot really, frankly, tell me his opinion about why they don't carry it, in, except that he said we're in Israel. And so I could feel his restraint, you know, and I think that Palestinians, uh, uh, Palestinian Israelis are more restrained, but their, their passion for uh, liberation uh, is is really magnificent. And I described that when we went on a um, um, humanitarian supplies uh, demonstration at uh, the Eretz um, border uh, to Gaza. And that was after the the siege of 2008. Um, I would say that maybe half of the people there, and we were close to a thousand, were um, Arab uh, or Palestinian Israelis who were coming from Nazareth and uh, uh, from the north, the Galilee, from everywhere. And so their spirit is is strong and they are united in that way. You know, we were also, of course, accompanied by Jewish Israelis and uh, who who disagree with the government and what is happening. This is was going to be my next question about your interaction with Israelis when, when you were there. For example, your interaction with those who are now living inside your uh, mother's house and, and then others, at whether it be at checkpoints or the ones who kind of support the Palestinian cause. I was fortunate, Jamal, to have met Israelis uh, who were on the same page with me, or at least were were cognizant of my condition and uh, and the condition of Palestine and the Palestinians. I I had the fortune, a uh, good fortune, of meeting Israelis who were kind to me, who open doors to me in ways that I couldn't have done on my own, like entering my mother's house, thanks to an Israeli friend uh, who spoke Hebrew, of course, and could speak with the, the current resident. I was able to enter my mother's house. And in fact, I write about that at some point, about how it was hard for me to be angry at all Israelis, because I couldn't do it that way. It was, I had to to really dig deep inside myself and say, well, there are some so many kind Israelis who who also are dissatisfied with what is happening in, in Israel and uh, the, the treatment of Palestinians. Uh, so so it was um, I did not meet a lot of resistance with Israelis because obviously I met people that were uh, very, very uh, you know, tolerant and and uh, uh, and in uh, in participation in their in in their heart and participation with us Palestinians. Uh, one often hears about the cathartic uh, effect of writing about oneself. I know that because uh, I've done that, uh, and also even did uh, working on my documentary where where I was a subject of the document the documentary. Did this experience uncover and clarify thoughts and feelings in a way that surprised you? Um, I, it's a very good question, by the way. Uh, I think that uh, when I started to write the book, I mostly wanted to highlight my mother because that had been the intention originally, that this was going to be a book about her. What surprised me was how much 
I had to say about the conditions that I was experiencing in Palestine, but also in how I felt. I I, uh, I had always been very proud to be a Palestinian because Mama was very, very uh, proud herself and instilled those values to me and my sister. But I, I developed a, a, a connection with the city and the people that uh, made me feel, even though I, I am in the diaspora, I'm in exile, I'm a daughter of a refugee, I felt Palestinian, and I, I described that uh, at the first faculty meeting at the school. We're sitting around the library table, and we're about 50 teachers, and I look around the room, and I don't feel like I'm the other. I am one of them. I am Palestinian. They're all Palestinian around the room, and on the wall is the Palestinian flag, which is something that you don't see, you know, in in, in my daily life in in California, and and when I lived in Switzerland, that I was always the other. So I I changed or learned about myself that deep down this part of me is is alive, you know, the part of me that that is Palestinian and rooted. To Jerusalem. You talk also about uh, the hospitality, but you also talk about the food. I'm, I'm not going to let you go uh, without talking about your experience <laughs> with the cuisine. <laughs> yes, the food in Palestine is fabulous. And if you've watched uh, uh, the late Anthony Bourdain's episode in Gaza, you know how he brought the Gazan people and the Palestinian people to the forefront through their cooking. And um, I'm not a big chef, but I love making ma'lube, which is the upside down uh, meat, mm -hmm. rice, and a vegetable. I make it mostly with eggplant. And uh, that's one of my favorite dishes, which a lot of people cooked for me, but they also cooked all kinds of mashis, which is big, which are stuffed vegetables. And it's such a wholesome meal, whether it's uh, stuffed squash and eggplants and tomatoes. And, and uh, you know, it, it felt like a feast, both to my senses, my sense of smell, my sense of taste, and, and also the beauty of it on the plate. You know, those rasbizata, those little breads with thyme, fresh thyme that we had picked in the garden, smelled fabulous. The entire house was perfumed with thyme. And every time you, you put it in your mouth, you felt, um, you know, that, that you were in Palestine because Zatar time is very, very much a symbol of our nation. Um, and also, you know, the, the desserts. I mean, there are so many desserts that... Uh, I had been used to growing up with my grandmother making them. My grandmother was from Aleppo and many of the, the desserts she made like Suarez Sit or uh, Karabish Halab and uh, some of those delicious time-consuming uh, pastries I grew up with and I found them in Palestine and enjoyed them as well as the knafe, of course, and the atayif during Ramadan and uh, so I was, you know, I gained a few pounds. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there is something when you talk about it. Also, there is one scent I can never uh, forget is when I walk in the old city and pass through, you know, the souk, yes. all these different scents of spices, 
you just don't get it anywhere else. People, it's hard to describe it to people because a lot of people people think about the old city as just like this historic. It's that's not just a one huge gigantic livable city <laughs> with a, with a souk and different scents and spices and so forth. I don't know if you're religious um, or not. I'm but spiritual. Let's put you're it. Spe- okay. Well, uh, when I went to College de Frere, you know, for 13 years, my route from my parents' house was going through the Via Dolorosa. Yes. And then passing basically the Holy Sepulchre and, and then continuing to the New Gate or Babi Jadid uh, to, to my school. So whenever I go there, I, I just can't help to think, well, wow, this is, I mean, people don't understand what's the Vale de la Rosa, this, this connection. This is the route that uh, Jesus Christ carries, the, 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 you know, the cross on his, on his shoulders, and then he, 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 he was crucified in, in the Holy Sepulchre. Did you feel any connection to this when, for example, you, you, you took that route and went to visit the Holy Sepulchre? Yes, I did feel that I was stepping on sacred ground. This is how I felt, you know, that that the ground was sacred, not because Christ had stepped on it, but also all of the pilgrims from all over the world who every year, um, especially at Easter, especially, um, uh, you know, during that time of the year in the springtime when all of the, the pilgrims come to pray and to uh, commemorate uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Uh, I was raised Catholic, um, but I my gr- maternal grandfather uh, was Muslim, a secular Muslim. And so I always had this sense of uh, the tolerance towards religions and the openness to the beauty of every religion and not feeling, you know, um, confined to the one I was brought up in. Um, so I I was lucky that with a good friend of mine, a Muslim friend of mine, I was able to enter uh, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque because I know that the entry is limited and difficult. Uh, but I was able to go in there. Uh, of course, I covered my head uh, with uh, a hijab and, and I... I was uh, very moved uh, going into those two places of worship. Um, And I think that, um, you know, it is, Jerusalem is the cradle of the three monotheistic religions, the main monotheistic religions. And to, to be part of that and to have access to the beauty of these places and the history of these places is, is unique, very unique. Where can uh, our audience buy your book? Well, there's several uh, possibilities. The book is published in England at uh, Thread Books, but you can ask in the United States or anywhere else in the world, you can ask your bookstore to order it for you. You can also order it on Amazon um, if you if you prefer that. And it's in three formats on Amazon as a paperback, an ebook for Kindle, or an audiobook. And the audiobook is beautifully narrated by a Palestinian American, Lamise Ishaq. And uh, she writes, she she has such a beautiful voice. And I discovered her by listening to a book that she was narrating and said to myself, This is my voice. I want this <laughs> voice. <laughs> and fortunately, she was able to do it. So um 
So this, these are the ways you can access uh, the book. The book is In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home by Mona Halabi. Go out there and buy the book. Thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. That's the voice in the face of Mona Halabi, a celebrated writer. Wow, very powerful. Talking about, you know, as you said in the beginning of the show, Jamal, you, in terms of the desire to return to Palestine, whether or not you were born there or in the diaspora, is a very powerful feeling in many, if not most, Palestinians worldwide, Jamal. And Mona tells a painful yet beautiful story about her attempt to return and to find out more about her family in Jerusalem. It's, a, it's quite a powerful story. And, and the interesting, uh, also part of the story, this is written through her mother's eyes. That's why she says, in my mother's footsteps, she's kind of reconstructing right. her mother's life in Palestine and growing up in Jerusalem. And her mother had to leave when she was 18, year old, 18 years old, right? you know, in, 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 in a hurry, basically, as the Irgun and Haganah were closing in on Palestinian families in, the, in West Jerusalem. And, and you know, we've, we've spoken about this many times and the thousands of Palestinians who lost homes, but they ended up basically leaving in a hurry uh, and going to live with an aunt of hers who lived in Egypt. And this is where uh, Mona uh, was born, uh, never to see Palestine until later on right. in, in her life. And then to, uh, by reconstructing, basically her knowledge about Jerusalem started with conversations she's had with her mom. And then also later on, because Mona lived, she lives in the, of course, in in the Bay Area now, but she also lives in Switzerland before coming to the Bay Area, and and in Egypt, and it was a bunch of letters that and exchanges she's had with her mother, right. trying to find out more about her roots and family and relatives and 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 home and so forth. Very, uh, I recommend uh, uh, to people to buy her book. Uh, it's available. Uh, on Amazon, it's available on on several in but, several uh, bookstores. Uh, it's a beautiful book. We want to recommend it to our viewers and listeners, Jamal. But at the same time, what a powerful antidote to Israeli Hasbara and the Hasbaristas, and that typical uh, narrative, you know, that's based on lies and um, historical. Uh, you know, not just inaccuracy, but as I said, lies, that there were no Palestinians, you know, as a land without people somehow, that somehow the the Israelis made, made bloom and populated such an outrageous story because, you know, families in Jerusalem, including your own, have been in Palestine, in Jerusalem for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, tracing their lineage and their lives there, uh, you know, through m not only, you know, many generations, but through many different, uh, <laughs> uh, how shall we say this, attempts to conquer Jerusalem invaders and, and conquests. So this crazy story about, you know, Palestine that has been perpetrated by the Israeli apartheid regime and specifically about Jerusalem, which, you know, as we will talk about every week, they're attempting to ethnically cleanse this story by Mona Halabi in her mother's eyes is really 
an antidote to all the hasbaristas, you know, and it should be read. Yeah, and then just, you know, my conclusion, uh, and, you know, we've had many Israelis on our show. Right. And several of uh, many, uh, every single one who we've had on our show uh, is very much aware of what happened. And we always quote uh, uh, the book by Ilan Pape, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. So the story has been told, it has been documented, and most Israelis that we've had, they know, they recognize, and they're in a way apologetic about it. The ones who are not, and who still, uh, you know, attach themselves to lives and 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 made up stories, I believe they don't even believe their own stories. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean that's my conclusion because the evidence is very strong. So. You know, every single street, every single road, every single city, every single village was built by Palestinians or now is built on top of Palestinian vacated, forcefully vacated homes. I mean, or that's, stolen land. Or stolen land. So anyway, um, I want to move on the same topic, basically. Speaking, speaking of ethnic cleansing, I mean, the drumbeats of war, Jamal, yeah. coming from uh, Tel Aviv, are, and, and the new regime, the Naftali Bennett regime, and, and their ilk are, it sounds like the drumbeats of war are, you know, beating very loud and very fast. Well, they've been doing this for a while, and we're going to focus on what's going on with Iran. So Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett met yesterday, uh, Wednesday, uh, the uh, CIA chief, William Burns. You know, William Burns is a career diplomat. He was Assistant Secretary of State uh, during... uh, Several, I think, administrations, he had he had a role to discuss basically what's going on in the Middle East, but specifically Iran, and that's why. And uh, in that meeting, they were joined by the Mossad uh, chief spy agency David uh, Barnea. So that's actually was even reported in the Israeli me- media. And uh, so they, of course, the interesting thing. <laughs> And that's the headline that kind of caught my eyes, is that during the meeting with Barnea, Burns was presented with information, according to the reports, uh, intended to show Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, the, the, the new president of Iran, as mentally disturbed, um, and I'm not making this up, Jess, untrustworthy and incapable of negotiating a new nuclear deal or sticking to his commitments. This is according, by the way, to Channel 12 News, the Israeli Channel 12 News that put that report out on on Tuesday. And we know Raisi is a a hardline former judiciary head of, uh, head who was uh, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei's choice for the That's role, right. and they they are all basically they have to be approved by by the Grand Ayatollah. Ayatollah. You just don't become president in Iran without that blessing, and uh, and he has been accused uh, by Kurds and and other reports that he ordered the executions of thousands of. Uh, 
prisoners were the end of the Iran-Iraq war in 1988. Right. This is, this is the... And this, of course, comes on the heels of, as you know, the just last week, or was it last week? Uh, no, last month. Now we're... In, that's in July, the um, empty Mercer uh, street and oil uh, products tanker operated by an Israeli-owned shipping company yeah. was struck by a drone off the Omani coast, killing two crew members, um, if you, you know, if our audience recalls this. So now... What's what's been going on for the since actually Neftali Bennett came into power, and with his defense minister, just like you rep reported, they have been beating the drums of war. We're back again, and this is what Netanyahu tried to do with Obama, right? And 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 and, and did that also with with uh, uh, Trump. You got to do something about Iran. You got to do something about Iran threatening. They want to egg, they're egging the United States right. basically to, they want to drag the United States into a war right. with Iran. Well, I'll, I just want to say a few things about that. You know, it what probably didn't get reported, Jamal, is that mm -hmm. William Burns went there to speak to Naftali Bennett to tell him to have Israel back down because the United States is attempting to negotiate or renegotiate or re restart the Iran-U.S. nuclear deal. So I am confident in saying that the reason that uh, Nicholas Burns went there was to um, tell William the, Burns. William Burns, sorry, William Burns there to to tell the Israelis to just like cool their jets. Secondly. To call the president of Iran mentally unstable is like the pot calling the kettle black. When you think about the warmongers and the dissemblers that uh, populate, uh, you know, the Israeli elite uh, political leaders, it's just like bizarre. Because the real story about Raisi, or the more complex story, I should say, about Raisi, is that he's a very strong leader. He doesn't mess around. He's not someone that will you know, play around with uh, the Israelis. I mean, what what the Israelis failed to take into account or what they failed to mention is that they assassinated last year, Jamal, one of the top military leaders uh, in the history of the ir ir modern Iranian uh, army. And they brutally, you know, illegally and murderously assassinated him. And, you know, at that time, you know, they promised that they would get some form of revenge. Now, they didn't say when, they didn't say where, but somehow the Israelis are taking this information uh, about the tanker uh, episode and using it to, again, promote whatever kind of crazy uh, war wish they have to drag the United States in. Let's not forget, this is yet another attempt to add the third aspect to it, Jamal, that the Israelis are waving their hands about Iran when they just committed war crimes in Gaza a number of months ago. So I hate to say this, but this really looks and smells like uh, old wine in new bottles, Jamal. I, I can't say that this is such a compelling you know, analysis or tactic by the Israelis, and I doubt that William Burns uh, bought much of it, to be honest. You're spot on, uh, Jess. Uh, I couldn't have said it any better. 
but uh, but it's kind of mind-boggling how the media has a short-term memory. Unbelievable. They start, they start with like, oh, the drone attack, which hasn't been, by the way, confirmed or, or Iran did not admit it. But they don't mention all the sabotage operations that Israel conducted in Iran, be it at nuclear reactors, uh, assassinating scientists, uh, as, as you've mentioned, assassinating uh, military commanders, and so on. So assuming Iran retaliated, they, the media forgot to, to, exactly. to mention who started it all. Exactly. And now they're back again, you know, uh, and again, the other thing is the media also notice, they talk about the Iran nuclear reactor, and I and, and we keep reminding everyone and that Israel is the only country to have introduced nuclear weapons That's right. into the Middle East, a country with 200 plus nuclear warheads. And to kind of complain, to say, oh my God, Iran is starting its nuclear reactors or enriching uranium, whatever, without even the media questioning why Israel should be the sole power to have nuclear weapons in the Middle East. I mean, I mean that's the question. I mean, there is a game being played here that anyone who took a political science 101 about deterrence knows the whole game that ha- was played between the former U- Soviet Union and the United States. That's right. You know, Pakistan and India. Right. Right. You can't just be the only power to have nuclear weapons if because you're not going to have the ability, you know, for deterrence. And, well, that's and, exactly and, right. And, and, and Israel cannot be manipulating that, that power in the Middle East. I mean, everybody should not have nuclear weapons to begin with. But, but since they started it, do you think the Iranians are going to sit on their hands and wait for Israel to nuke them? I mean, no. that's the question. No, you're absolutely right, Jamal. And the Iranians are smart. They're capable. They have abilities. And um, my question would be to the world and to the mainstream media, with such threatening language coming from uh, Tel Aviv and Naftali Bennett and formerly Benjamin Netanyahu, why wouldn't Iran do everything in its strategic interest to protect itself? Why wouldn't it? You've had Israeli sabotage uh, destroy on multiple occasions, as you as you mentioned, uh nuclear sites done for medical reasons at the very least, who knows what for for what else, killing their nuclear scientists and other acts of, you know, international espionage and, and you know, murder against uh, the, the Iranian uh, people in the Iranian state. Why wouldn't, and no one's asking this question, why wouldn't the Iranians do everything in their power to protect themselves from these, uh, from these hostile attacks? I mean, why isn't anybody asking that question? You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We're moving to the next topic, Jess, because it's not this good, is a Jamal. very important topic. No, yeah, it does not but look it's, good. It's, it's a terrible story. It's 20 years of, of devastation to such an amazing, beautiful country in Afghanistan. And I think, you know, when I think back on the, you know, I'm not one of these people that that kind of um, really looks back on the Obama administration, you know, uh, with deary doe eyes or anything like that. I mean, I think they, 
Obama made a lot of mistakes. He he did a lot of foreign policy blunders, not the least of which was how he engaged with uh, or failed to engage with the question of Palestine. But the biggest blunder among among many is his failure to really deal with the issues and what was going on in Afghanistan and continuing to keep American troops there for another eight years and then under Trump another four years after that. The country is devastated. The Americans are pulling out. They'll be out in the next couple of weeks. The Taliban have taken over 10 provincial capitals. They're on the doorstep of Kabul. People are freaked out. And now the Americans are begging the Taliban to spare the U.S. embassy. What a complete disaster, Jamal. Not to mention the $2 trillion spent by the United States in Afghanistan and the thousands of Americans' lives lost and the tens of thousands of... Injured. Of the, not just uh, injured, but also the Afghan civilians who, who were died. killed. Oh, absolutely. Who died in, in these years. You started actually earlier by saying that the United States, and that's actually your, uh, was now trying to reach out to the Taliban, asking them, you know, to, uh, or trying to extract assurances from the Taliban that they will not attack the U.S. embassy in Kabul if they, extre- if they, if they overrun the capital uh, you know, you're absolutely correct in this one. The effort is now currently being led by Zalmay Khalil Zad, you know, the chief American envoy. And he's he's in, engaged in talks. It. What does this remind you of? It reminds me of another Hanoi, the exactly, fall of Jamal. Hanoi. And, 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 and I just... I was too young, I mean, during, during, but I still remember those images, uh, black and white images, seeing Americans right. and, 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 and their Vietnamese supporters uh, piling up on the roof to be lifted evacuated. off by, right. evacuated by helicopters. So it seems that this is what the, at least the Central Intelligence Agency and the military and the State Department, uh, they're all coming to this conclusion that this scenario might happen. I'm going to go out on a limb, Jamal, and I hate to say this, but I'm going to be right. The Taliban will take Kabul, 100%. There's no question in my mind. Uh, You know, the 300,000 Afghan army, uh, you know, military that the U.S. has been training over the years— they're, they're giving up and or being taken prisoner and or being killed by the Taliban. There is no question that the Taliban, in my mind, are going to take Kabul at some point. And he, I have breaking news for the Americans who are in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Leave. Get out while you can. The Taliban will not spare the U.S. Embassy. Guaranteed. I'm I'm willing to bet anything on it. Well, unless they, they reach... Uh an agreement. I mean, and that's that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, and hopefully, but they, I mean, they've ha- they've tried multiple agreements with the Taliban, and that they have reneged on almost every single one, Jamal. So I have no confidence in the United States being able to come up with an agreement that will be you know carried out. I you know this is we're headed for. Among, you know, among all the catastrophic uh, foreign policy disasters that this country has engaged in since the end of World War II, we're going to look back. I mean, you know, of course, we'll talk about the disaster in Vietnam, 
the disaster in Korea, the disaster in, you know, Palestine, the disaster in Iraq, the disaster in Libya, all of these, uh, you know, exploitations. Um, this is not going to end well, Jamal. This is not going well, to Well, the end problem well. is we don't learn from lessons. Uh, do you know what's the nickname given to Afghanistan, Jess? No, what? The, grave, the graveyard of empires. That's right. And 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 it is not for nothing, you know. The United States and its allies are only the latest, by the way, in a long series of nations to do so, to be basically driven out of Afghanistan. The British learned learned that in their eighteen thirty nine to eighteen forty two war in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, right. learned this from 1979 to 1989 and many other nations. Well, I've been to Afghanistan. Can I, I just can add one that. more? One more, Jamal. Uh, you know, Alexander the Great. T- yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just talking about recent history. <laughs> no, I'm just, I mean, I'm just the, trying to tell you that it go. I mean, you know that already, but he also attempted to conquer Afghanistan and... Um, failed miserably and actually died, in part because of what he tried to do in Afghanistan at the time. At the time, was part of yeah. the great Persian Empire, but still, you know, in a, what is modern-day Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I've, I've been to Kabul. I've yes, been to Afghanistan. that's right, you have. Uh, I've, I've seen the people, I've seen the terrain, and I have to comment on the physical terrain of Av- Afghanistan, which makes... Uh, it's conquest and rule, extremely difficult. Uh, you know, it's dominated by the highest and more jagged mountains in, in the world. I remember looking at these mountains from my room in, in, in Kabul. Uh, mountains include the Hindu Kush, uh, which basically dominates the country and run through the center and south of the country. Uh, the Pamir Mountains in the east, and so forth. So we saw like how long it took to go after basically Bin Laden, after you know when they went in, in, in Tora Bora, basically right. destroying Tora Bora, and still he managed to to slip away into uh, Pakistan after that. So the terrain is so unhospitable. If you're not familiar with the terrain. It's very problematic. But but let's also look at the psychology of it. I mean, you're talking about American forces there for 20 years. Thousands of Americans died. Tens of thousands of American servicemen and women injured. Tens of thousands of Afghan civilians, you know, killed. Um, And then you have the Taliban who, who have been there, who are attached to the land, who see it as part of their you know, ultimate um, purpose in life to to liberate Afghanistan from any outside influence or or invader who are committed to doing so until death. So the Taliban have nothing to lose and the Americans, the British, the Soviets had everything to lose. So where are you going to put your money on a people who have lived there, who have nothing to lose, and are willing to fight for decades, versus a, an outside invader who has very little attachment to the land. Yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, it has been a mistake. Uh, I'm not against actually 
Biden pulling out the troops, even though if you go back, um, he for two decades basically uh, insisted um, leaving uh, um, forces, uh, American forces sure. in Afghanistan, and then saying, and that's like what they were saying before sure. during the Obama administration, that the Afghan forces are capable of defending themselves. Well, not, they've proven not they're really. not. <laughs> and that's, so that's the same mistake saying like, okay, we're going to train these Afghan soldiers who are loyal to the United States somehow, and they're going to be able to defend themselves. We're going to pull our troops out of the country, and everything will be hunky-dory. Well, well you know. That's not the case. No, then, that's exactly right, Jamal. And I, you know, I won't even talk about Trump, uh, his his agenda, because he didn't really have one. But I really think that some of this goes back to the, Obama's miscalculation. I mean, he miscalculated on so many fronts and took advice that turned out to be really, you know, devastating uh, for the United States and devastating for the people of Afghanistan. So I consider this also one of the blunders and mistakes of the Obama administration, Um I mean the 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 lots of books are coming out now talking about you know the Obama failures in Afghanistan and the only people that are really going to suffer are the people of Afghanistan. And where did that 2 trillion dollars go, Jamal? That's what I want to know. Nowhere. Yeah. Nowhere. It's just like a waste. Well, we only have a few so minutes. Yeah, we, we only few have minutes. a few minutes left, man, and I'm sorry to say right. that I've got more bad news for you. So just before you start, achieving herd immunity with COVID vaccine uh, is not a possibility. I was reading this morning. No, it's not. Uh, this is a statement was made by a uh, head, the head of the Oxford vaccine group in, in Britain right. in a testimony. Well, I'll, I'll even make it more real for, for our v- viewers and listeners who are from the United States, although this is true for the world. Only about 50% of uh, people living in the United States right now are fully vaccinated. The Oxford study that you refer to is, is a great, was in a great, a, a great opinion piece. It's done on modeling and statistics of the, not just the SARS-CoV-2, you know, the original SARS uh, coronavirus, but now it's talking about the Delta, the Delta Plus, the Lambda, all of these variants that are coming out and basically saying, you know, we missed the boat. All of the people in the United States, these kind of, um, I call them accessories to murder, Jamal, whether it be Governor Abbott or Governor DeSantis, Governor Nome, all of these anti-vaxxers, all of these individuals who believe in individual liberty to do whatever you want, have created the context for the impossibility for us in the United States to ever achieve true herd immunity, which means, Jamal, given that only about 50% of us in the United States are fully vaccinated, that the, that the curve, if you will, the slope of the curve of the people who are getting infected, those who are getting uh, sick and hospitalized, and those who are dying, is the, the, you know, how steep that curve is, is almost exactly the same or even worse than it was at the peak when we were going through this uh, last year. It's devastating. And I just want to say, you know, I hold all of these individuals like DeSantis and Abbott and Noam, you know, 
it's their accessories to murder. They're they're like if you drive the getaway car and the person who jumps in the car just killed people, you you get charged too. And when you look at, for example, in Louisiana, Jamal, you know, half of the admissions in the hospitals in Louisiana are children under the age of two. Um, that Governor DeSantis uh, is saying that uh, that schools in Florida may not spend any money to buy masks to give to children, may not issue mandates. In my mind, these individuals are accessories to murder. And I, you know, I'm... If I see child abuse because of my license, I'm obligated to report it to authorities. If DeSantis or Abbott were in the state of California, I would report them for child abuse and neglect. This this is going to go down in history, Jamal, as truly one of the biggest catastrophes in our country. So are we headed for lockdowns? I doubt it. Are Millions of more people going to get sick and tens of thousands going to die? Absolutely. Will children get sick? They're getting sick and as younger than two years old. So it's we're headed for some really dark times. So the message is still take care, wear your mask. Get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Jamal, where we live in... Indoors into crowded areas. We're not there yet. Jamal, we live in Northern California, one of the most highly vaccinated places in the country, yet we are defined now as being a hotspot because of the percentage of infections that are occurring where we live. So get vaccinated, wear a mask. Um, the Delta vari- variant is much more easily transmissible. Just be very careful. Don't, I mean, I, I have to be careful. <laughs> I say, obviously, because I'm so angry, and I'll just say it as in the final last minutes, I don't want to see any more deathbed confessions about how people wish they had gotten the vaccine. You know, we have science deniers in government. We have politicians who are science deniers saying crazy things, and people are dying as a result. Well, uh, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to watch all all of our previous shows, and we will talk to you next week. See you next week.